Love Talk Radio. Speaking with Jay Aykroyd. I'm Jay Aykroyd. At Virtually Speaking, we discuss a broad range of subjects, mostly revolving around current events, often from a progressive point of view. Many of our guests are authors, as is tonight's guest. Our guest tonight is Juan Cole. Juan is the Richard P. Mitchell Collegiate Professor of History at the University of Michigan. For three decades, he sought to put the relationship of the West and the Muslim world into historical content. His most recent books are Engage in the Muslim World and Napoleon's Egypt, Invading the Middle East, which can be picked up um, at Amazon. You can grab it at Atreos' place or also at BTR. He has written and spoken widely about Egypt, Iran, Iraq, and South Asia. He has commented extensively on Al-Qaeda and the Taliban, the Iraq War, the politics of Pakistan and Afghanistan, and Iranian domestic struggles and foreign affairs. He also has a regular column at TruthDig. He continues to study and write about contemporary Islamic movements, whether mainstream or radical, whether Sunni or Salafi or Shiite. And, of course, he commands the languages of Arabic, Persian, and Urdu, all reading some Turkish. Juan, it's wonderful to have you with us. Thanks so much, Jay. Uh, we set this up months ago, but we, I knew there would be something interesting going on because there always is. So I'd like actually to back off a little bit from what's breaking and talk about Egypt. I think that's kind of slipped onto the back burner, and I'd like to hear what your process is of the situation there now. Well, the situation in Egypt is in many ways very dark. Uh, there's more or less been a, a counter-revolution, a, a military coup, uh, a restoration uh, to office uh, at, at the bureaucratic level of a large number of former uh, Mubarak uh, supporters. And um, uh, the, the regime, of course, is cracking down hard on the Muslim Brotherhood, which has been in a short, uh, uh, you know, a little over a year, has gone from being viewed as a legitimate political party uh, capable of winning the presidency to being castigated as a terrorist organization and cult. Uh, so it's it's being viewed the way David Koresh's uh, group was at Waco, Texas, in the United States. So this is uh, mind-boggling uh, and uh, uh, a very rapid set of events, which does not bode well for the future, because uh, when you demonize and marginalize a substantial group like the Muslim Brotherhood in Egyptian society, obviously there's going to be pushback, uh, people will go underground, there's already some terrorism as a result. Uh, so uh, not a good situation. In previous situations where the Brotherhood has obtained some power, they've moderated themselves just in order to have some kind of positive impact, is my my recollection anyway. Right. So in Egypt, uh, I, I would be the first to admit that the Muslim Brotherhood, having captured the presidency, went too far. Uh, they, they went too fast, uh, and they... Uh, they alienated a lot of people. Uh, they behaved in a very uh, inward-looking and sectarian manner, 
uh, and they spooked people. Uh, people thought, well, maybe these guys, you know, can play the parliamentary game. Maybe they can be, you know, the uh, the Christian Democrats, uh, as you have in Germany, uh, or the American, you know, the, the Republicans who are evangelicals, who nevertheless, you know, stand for election, accept it when they're defeated, and so forth. But instead, uh, the Brotherhood, once once it got the presidency, started acting very dictatorially. Uh, they had promised that the Constitution would be a consensus document. Instead, they pushed through uh, a Constitution that most of the country opposed. Uh, probably only about 20% of the electorate uh, voted yes for it. Uh, and which was, uh, you know, all full of trap doors that kind of brought in a Muslim fundamentalist uh, order. President Mohammed Morsi more or less appointed a parliament for himself, and uh, it started passing fundamentalist laws, and then uh, he made a move on the judiciary. He was going to fire about a quarter of the judges and put in Muslim Brotherhood judges. So it, it looked to Egyptians uh, who... who we're following these things that the brotherhood was kind of trying to take over all three branches of government. And, uh, uh, it, it looked like a, a kind of slow motion coup. Now it's always seemed to me that Egypt would be in some ways the least likely to become an Islamist run society just because of the richness of their heritage and the complexity of the society. Uh, do you really think that there was some risk that there could be a, I don't know, an Islamist takeover and a violation of election processes in, in Egypt by um, by this group? Well, there were uh, irregularities. For instance, when uh, there was a 100-member committee to write the Constitution, and uh, in November of last year, 2012, people started resigning. The Coptic Christians resigned, and then the the youth activists resigned, and the liberals resigned, and, and you know, the, the women resigned. And you lost about altogether 40 members out of the 100. And instead of being chastened, instead of saying, well, okay, you know, we're doing something wrong here, the remaining 60 voted in the text that everybody was objecting to, and then Morsi rushed it to a referendum, in Egypt, uh, the, the elections are overseen by the judges, and they're the ones who, main, who, who guarantee the uh, integrity of the ballot boxes. Well, the judges went on strike, and they refused to oversee that, that referendum, and so Morsi just brought in, like Muslim brother, law professors and uh, uh, any old person. Uh, and so those elections couldn't be that, that that referendum for the constitution uh couldn't be certified as meeting international standards and both in the willingness to disregard the protest and to rush through what was clearly uh you know a a um, a document that didn't have uh, uh the full support of the uh, drafting committee and then, you know, the, the turnout was only about 33%, and, and it passed by 63% altogether. So I figure about 20% of Egyptian uh, voters voted for this thing. Uh, so that was all very dictatorial, and there were masses of people demonstrating in the streets all through November and December because of this high-handedness. And at one point, Morsi just sort of said, well, you know, the courts can't overrule me. I'm above the courts. So... 
you know, from an activist point of view, Morsi, uh, the Muslim Brotherhood president, had begun already, you know, acting very high-handedly and in ways that reminded people uncomfortably of uh, Hosni Mubarak and the, and the old dictatorship. Now, a lot of people here in the U.S., especially people who wanted to see the government succeed, said that the protests were manufactured, that they were the product of um, manipulation and by the, uh, by the military. Do you think there's something to that, or do you think that this was really a, a widespread sense of opposition to the elected government? Oh, no, it, it was a mass movement, uh, and theories about manipulation and so forth don't even make any sense in this context. Well, what happened was that uh, youth activists, and after all, youth activists had overthrown Mubarak, youth activists sat down in late April of this year and uh, decided that something had to be done uh, to stop this rush to uh, you know, what they viewed as uh, an Egyptian clone of the Iranian system, and um, they came up with the idea of petitioning the government to have a, a recall election. So um, there isn't a provision in the Egyptian constitution for such a thing, uh, and I don't know if the youth activists modeled what they were thinking on uh, the uh, you know Wisconsin and California American model of, of you know governors can be recalled. Uh, but this is what they they said. They said that Morsi had turned into a huge disappointment. Uh, he had lost the support of the of the vast majority of people, uh, and therefore should be uh, should there should be early elections, uh, and, and Morsi should be made to run for his his own his own office. Right, he should have to run for office in essentially a referendum on the referendum, I guess. Well, he had been elected to a four-year term. Right. So they were saying after only a year, he should have to, to run again uh, against candidates. Mm -hmm. uh, that was what they asked for. It was they asked for a recall election. So they got up a petition. It was a one-page petition, and they called themselves the Rebellion Movement, Tamarud. And I was in Egypt in early June, and that petition was everywhere. People would just hand it to you. They they wanted me to sign it. <laughs> I was I was honored. Um, and if somebody you know, if people saw you walking in the street with one, uh, they smiled at you. They said, "Oh, we're glad to see you're with us." And you know, I was in touch with a range of people when I was there, including working class people, and I found that the thing was extremely popular across the board. Uh, Pew. Charitable Trust did polling in Egypt over the past couple of years, and they found that support for the Muslim Brotherhood fell from around 50% at the time that uh, Morsi uh, started making a push for his constitution to 19% in early June. And I think that poll is correct. That that's that accords with what. You know my own anecdotal uh, experiences in Egypt. You, you you saw people. You know in Egypt sometimes you can tell people's uh, religious and political views a little bit by how they dress or how they wear their beard. Yeah, I had people who you know had that kind of fringe Abraham Lincoln style beard, uh, sort of white and uh, older men, and people that looked like they must be Morsi supporters, and they were just really down on him. And then. The workers, the tech, you know, there's several hundred thousand textile workers in Egypt, uh, and uh, the industrial sector uh, suffered under Morsi, and 
the the workers came out against him. Uh, it wasn't just the youth activists. So uh, no, no, I, this was a, a genuine grassroots movement, and they they claimed to have gotten 22 million uh, signatures on their petition, which I find entirely plausible. Huh. So, but then the military steps in, and this whole democratic response or populist response, I guess is more accurate, gets stifled in a different way. Now, is there any way forward at this point? No, it's it's bad. It's not a good scene. Um, yeah, well, see, the young people who made this movement weren't asking for a coup. No, but when I was there, nobody was talking about the military or a coup. That wasn't on the petition. Nobody gave any speeches in that regard. Uh, they they just uh, well, they wanted a recall, uh, and they um, uh, what happened was that they they succeeded beyond their wildest dreams. When when I was there in early June. Uh, they were planning for a, a big uh, demonstration on June 30th, which was the one-year anniversary of Morsi being sworn in as president. Uh, and nobody knew at that time whether this would amount to anything, because there have been a number of occasions in which the youth movements uh, called for uh, demonstrations, and then nobody showed up. So I met with people who were in the Tamara movement then, and they just didn't know. But what happened was that you, you got millions of people in the street demanding Morsi go. And when that happened, there was pushback from the Muslim Brotherhood, and people were afraid there would be blood in the streets. Right. Now, I've got a couple of questions. Uh, one of them is perfectly timed for that response. And that is, to what extent were the young Egyptian activists correct in the feeling that you describe comparing them to post-revolutionary Iran. And folks, of course, you remember that the Iranian revolution was led by a youth movement. Well, I, I don't entirely agree that the Iranian revolution ah. of 1979 was Thank you. A, a youth movement. Uh, it, 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 you know, people who have analyzed it uh, have found that it, it was a mass movement. And uh, the oil workers uh, down south, the, uh, the the teachers unions, the um, uh, uh, the, the air force uh, officers, lots of people joined in this uh, this 1979 revolution in Iran uh, of you know middle-aged people, and uh, it, it, it was a very different phenomenon uh, than the 2011 or the 2013 Egyptian revolutions. Uh, which really were networked uh, youth uh, and uh, that, that, that spearheaded them. Uh, so I, I don't think it's the same thing. As to whether the Muslim Brotherhood really was, you know, on a path towards uh, uh, theocracy, I mean, I think that's an exaggeration. Uh, but uh, it certainly was taking steps that were concerning in that regard. That is to say, so Morsi created this parliament almost out of uh, thin air. Uh, uh, the upper house of, of Egyptian parliament is, uh, is ceremonial, and he tried to turn it into, an, it was largely an appointed body, he tried to turn it into a real uh, uh, parliament, and, and they passed a law that uh, changed the uh, retirement age of judges from 70 to 60, and it would have meant that about a fourth of judges would have had to step down. And, you know, in a couple of years, then that would mean that there were a lot of vacancies in the judiciary. And it was very clear that the Brotherhood would appoint Muslim brother jurists to all those posts. So 
once you have the judiciary uh, and you have the legislature, you've got the laws and you've got the interpretation of the laws. Uh, so it was a pincer movement. And uh, to, to the Brotherhood's critics, it, it looked a lot like what happened in Eastern Europe after World War II, where you know the communists gradually put themselves in place in places like Hungary and Poland and so forth and just took over. Right. So the other question is actually a very good one. So why did the military step in in this situation? What was their justification? Well, their justification was that the rebellion movement had succeeded so well and put so many millions of demonstrators in, in the streets that if Morsi refused to acquiesce and refused to have a runoff election, an early, uh, an early recall election, uh, there was real danger of the anti-Morsi and the pro-Morsi demonstrators uh, coming to blows in the streets, even maybe deploying weapons against one another, that, that Egypt was at, a, at such a crisis point that it could easily have fallen into a civil war. Because Morsi absolutely refused. Uh, he, he maintained he was the legitimately elected president. He wasn't going to negotiate with anybody. He didn't care how many millions of people were in the street. He denied that there were people in the street. Uh, he, he seemed to be, you know, have lost touch with reality, and uh, so the military's reasoning was that if they just let this thing drift, uh, it, it, you know, it would go to Iraq. It, w it would just fall into civil war. Right. So they just they see themselves as a source of stability and um, as necessarily moving in. Now, I guess the last thing I'd like you to address on this is what, if anything can the U.S. do to facilitate um, a more stable process or a government that's seen as legitimate or something? Is there any role for the U.S. in, in Egypt at this point? Oh, well, sure. You know, the U.S. is a superpower, and it's a patron of the Egyptian government, uh, has longstanding close relationships with the Egyptian elite and with the uh, officer corps. So behind the scenes, I mean, it's not really useful for the United States to do these things publicly, right, because it gets people's backs up, uh, and it looks like the U.S. is bullying people. But behind the scenes, I'm quite sure that the U.S. Embassy is uh, calling General uh, Abdel Fattah Sisi uh, the de facto uh, military junta leader, and, and saying, you've got to move to new elections. Uh, they have to be free and fair. Uh, you have to, to, to move quickly to the redrafting the Constitution uh, and uh, putting pressure on this military government uh, to move to a, a, a legitimacy uh, that comes from new elections. Now, the problem is that the, the coup makers want to exclude uh, the Muslim Brotherhood uh, from from future elections. They want to make them illegal, basically, as a political group. Uh, and uh, if they do that, then it's hard to see how the elections can be genuinely authentic or, or legitimate because you will have been ex you have excluded a, a large number of, of the electorate uh, from their choice of party. So, you know, again, it would be like the uh, the socialists uh, in Germany 
outlawing the Christian Democrats and saying, you know, if you've got Christian in your name, you, you can't participate in secular politics. Uh, so um, I, I'm sure the U.S. is also pushing back against that, but it's difficult because there's kind of an urban legend in Egypt, which is widely believed that the uh, Americans supported the Muslim Brotherhood, even in some way engineered their taking over Egypt uh, as a way of taking pressure off the United States from al-Qaeda. And so uh, large numbers of left liberal Egyptians are furious at the United States for what they see as, uh, as support for the Muslim Brotherhood. So the U.S. isn't in a strong position to pressure the Egyptian government to make nice with the Brotherhood. Wow. Boy, that's a quandary. Yeah, and then the Brotherhood blames the United States for supporting the coup. So our name is mud. And, of course, we do have this formal rule that we're supposed to withdraw funds if a coup takes place. Yeah, I mean, legally speaking, you, you couldn't avoid that. There's certainly been a coup, and the, the funds ought to be cut off. Uh, the problem is that if you cut off the funds, then you've completely lost any leverage with the generals, and how would you ever then get them to go back to an elected government? So if, if you've got your eye on outcomes, then it's crazy to cut off the money. But if you have your eye on um, you know, formal legalities, then obviously uh, there's been a coup. Right. So... The short-sighted thing to do is what everybody always falls into. I mean, the idea of not allowing the Brotherhood to participate in the elections is a short-sighted idea. And the idea of cutting off funds or not cutting off funds either way is, has short-term implications, all of which get in the way of a long-term process. So that's why you say bad. Yeah. Well, I think if U.S. wants to have an effective voice in this particular situation, uh, practically speaking, uh, not cutting off the funds, but threatening to, is the uh, is probably the the most practical way to proceed. By the way, the funds have already been voted for this year. They were voted, I think, in April. So the question of cutting them off can't even come up until until next spring. Well, the president could decide not to disperse, of course. Well, uh, yeah, although. You know, in the U.S. system, the Congress really tends to make those decisions about money. Yeah, appropriations. Well, let me pass on one more question from the audience. It's Stuart Zeckman again. He said, wouldn't it work better the other way around to cut off the funds first and then offer them if the uh, military does demonstrate reforms? Well, that's what I'm saying, though, is the funds are already, I don't know if they've been formally turned over or whether they're in the pipeline so all you could do would be to announce that you were cutting off money next year. Well, that's an answer. I'd like to turn now to Syria. You had a really nice post today summarizing the Syrian situation for Americans who uh, have trouble finding Syria on a map, I guess is one way you could have put it. But it was actually a really useful 10 points of summary. And I'd like to focus on the fourth point that you that you made in there. You described the uh, sources of the revolution and the civil war, saying it did not begin as primarily sectarian. Could you kind of outline that for our audience? Right. So, you know, what, what happened in Syria is you had uh, a kind of one-party state that's familiar to us from Eastern Europe, uh, which, however, you know, it wasn't a communist party that was in control, but it was something that called itself a uh, socialist Arab nationalist party, the Ba'ath Party or the Resurrection Party. 
So it's a one-party state, a secret police, and a very large public sector. Uh, in the 90s, uh, as with many of these governments, there was a turn towards uh, what scholars call neoliberalism, which is to say a turn towards market mechanisms rather than a command economy, uh, rather than government bureaucrats deciding how many umbrellas the factories make that year, uh, having more, more market uh, input. But one of the things that happens when these kinds of systems move to a market is that there are enormous possibilities for insider trading because the government controls a lot of the economy. If it's going to privatize part of the economy, who would know about that is the government officials, and then they you know, know where to put their, their money and, and invest and so forth. So you get new billionaires and uh, a lot of feeling of inequity. So that was going on. The government was losing, I think, its its legitimacy with a lot of people because it was becoming, you know, like the Russian oligarchs. It was becoming a government of cronies and uh, neoliberal uh, opportunists. And then on the other side, the two big things happened. One was that uh, uh, there's been a lot of drought in, in Syria in the past decade. Uh, it is connected to global warming. And so there have been problems with farmers having enough water for their crops. And one of the things that the Ba'ath government back in the 70s was really good at was irrigation. And it was one of the reasons that it had the support of the rural and farming communities, even you know the Sunni Muslims amongst them. And it stopped being good at irrigation uh, about a decade ago. Uh, it may be that the, the global warming and the drought were just, not, you know they weren't susceptible of being overcome, uh, and it could also be that since the government had turned to making money, that uh, neoliberalism didn't uh, impel the same kind of efficiency of, of government bureaucracy and things like providing irrigation. It's not easy to tell from the outside, but whatever it was, uh, a lot of young farmers were leaving the farms because they couldn't make a living without enough water. And they would go to these uh, small cities of the center part of the country, like Homs and Hama, and look for day jobs. They were working, you know, construction and things like that. And they would live in the outskirts of the city. And in Syria, as in, in Paris, the, it's the suburbs that are the slums, and the inner city is nice. You know, with the 2008 turndown in the world economy because of all those bankers on Wall Street stealing our money, <laughs> uh, and uh, putting people out of their homes. Not to put too fine a point upon it. This threw the whole world into recession, and, and, and even some people have said depression, but it hit, it hit Syria along with everybody else. So not only could these young farmers make it on the farm because of the drought, but now they, they, there's no jobs for them in these uh, cities of, of the center of the country because there's the economic downturn. Uh, and uh, there's no construction going on and no investment, and, and uh, the factories are uh, laying off people. So in 2011, when this thing started, part of what was going on was those slums were demonstrating, and, and there was a jobs demonstration. Uh, it, was, it was workers. Uh, and there were also young people in, uh, in various parts of the country that were coming out in the city squares uh, often at night and chanting, Saying they want to follow the regime, uh, so there, you know they used YouTube. There was a youth movement aspect to it, uh, but there were also uh, workers and farmers uh, protesting. So it was, 
it was a class conflict. It was people at the bottom of this system who weren't being served by uh, this government uh, well anymore uh, who wanted it gone. And then you had the uh, Bashar al-Assad, the president, and his brother Mahar al-Assad, the head of the uh, of the armored corps in the military, and you had Rami Makhlouf, the cousin of the president, who uh, was among the wealthiest men in the country, a multi-billionaire. Uh, you have this this elite of, of oligarchs, really, of of the Ba'ath Party at the top, and uh, versus these working class people and youth and students at the bottom. Uh, and that's really how the whole thing started. Now, I've heard from some of the people who attribute this to the climate that, in fact, aquifers are being deeply depleted. And this is not merely a short-term issue, but something that may mean real harm for Syria over even the medium term. Do you have any sense of that, or is it still too early to tell? Well, aquifers have been being depleted all over the Middle East. And in most unwise ways, and, and th this is true in Syria as well as in the West Bank and, and so forth. So uh, in the West Bank, it's Israeli policy. In, in, in Syria, it was Ba'ath policy. But it, it wasn't just the aquifers. There also was a fall-off in, in rainfall and a, a problem with, with warming. Uh, it's, it's like what's happening in the American Southwest. Right, and we do think that's climate at this point. Now, we haven't gotten to the proximate excitement, though, and that is um, the U.S. kind of stumbling into Russia's arms, I guess, or into Putin's arms to um, avoid U.S. involvement, direct involvement militarily. First off, what parts of the story of the Assad regime being responsible for the chemical attacks, do you, do you, where do you come down on that? I know that the evidence is mixed. Well, yeah, the the evidence seems to me to be pretty pretty powerful. Of course, there's always a fog of war, but uh, the evidence seems to be pretty powerful that Syrian military units fired these rockets with uh, with poison gas in, in in the warheads, and you know some of the leaked intelligence suggests that the order to do so didn't come from high up. That, it, that is to say, there was one piece of leaked intelligence that uh, suggested that the Ministry of Defense called up the local commanders in um, the Damascus suburbs and said, what in the world are you guys doing down there? So, it, it, you know, it sounded like Damascus was alarmed and that uh, that a, a local rogue colonel had gone off the reservation. Ah, we've seen that movie, haven't we? Yeah, yeah. Well, that's that's plausible. Uh, it's it's also sometimes suggested uh, by some observers that, you know, a lot of things can be done with regard to the policy on the ground in the military with a wink and a nod. So uh, Mahar al-Assad did, didn't have to send around a memo saying, you know, if you need to use some chem, uh, he, he could just have, you know, hinted at it, and uh, it would go down the line of command. So. It's, it's hard to know uh, uh, how far the, up this went, but I, I, that that the attack was, you know, it, 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 these rockets were fired as part of a regime campaign of bombing uh, Ghouta, which is in, in the eastern suburbs of, of Damascus, uh, and it, it, this is rebel-held territory. So it just doesn't make any sense that the rebels are gassing their own people. I mean, this, this, these populations were, were loyal to the rebel cause who got gassed. 
All right, we've got a couple of questions. Both of all of them good. Um, so let me start with Culture of Truth, who asks, "How does a rogue colonel acquire access to Saren?" I was referring to Strange Love, of course, the movie, and there was a lot of fuss in there about how the colonel was able to, in this fictional portrayal, get get hold of nukes. How was the colonel, rogue colonel, able to get hold of Saren? Oh well, the, the Syrian um, uh, army has chem units attached to the regular uh, uh, units, so you know it's it, it's it's just not okay. an issue that that the Syrian army has this stuff and can deploy it is, is not in question. So it's a break in the chain of command, or a wink or a nod from the chain of command. I've also heard speculation that it's a false flag attempt from the Saudis to draw in U.S. Yeah, that, I just find that ridiculous, Jay. I'm I, I'm sorry. I just I mean I, I, I'm not slamming you. I'm just saying, the the argument that the rebels gassed their own people. Uh, first of all, we we've, we've actually got pictures of the rockets that were deployed, the regime rockets, uh, and there's no reason to think that the rebels have them. And then. Why would they deploy them in, in East right. Huta against their own people? And the idea that you would kill a, a thousand people. Remember, in southern uh, Syria, it's not like in the north where there are these uh, radical people who came in from Iraq and so forth, the Jabhat al-Nusra and the, the al-Qaeda affiliates. These are local boys. And they, the, the neighborhoods went against the regime, and, and they threw up these, these local rebel fighters. So, you know, you'd have to imagine that for nefarious purposes, the guys from Ghouta decided to kill off Aunt Layla uh, in order to make the regime look bad. And while I actually wouldn't say that the Al-Qaeda affiliates are above such an action up north in Aleppo, uh, down in, around Damascus, it's just not the same political geography, and I just don't find it plausible. There have been speculation from people who said it was a Saudi false flag, that is not rebels firing on themselves, but Saudis suborning people in order to draw the U.S. in. And you also think that's absurd or just kind of a crazy conspiracy theory? Yeah, it just it doesn't, it, it doesn't accord with what we know on the ground uh, in that particular area. Okay. Uh, and, you know, it's not just me that, that's saying this. I'm on email uh, lists with uh, security people and, and uh, political scientists and Syria experts and so forth. And uh, in my circles, nobody takes the false flag uh, argument seriously. There were a few people who did very early on, but as the evidence started coming out, uh, all of us have gone over to a conviction that this was – a, a Syrian military operation. Now, again, whether it's a regime operation, you could argue about. Right, and as you said, that will never be clear. It could have been ordered but not ordered, yeah. or it could have been a rogue, yeah, or yeah. could have been, so, right. fine. So the last question I want to touch on with respect to Syria, it's a, it's a big one, though. It seems to have gotten turned from class conflict into ethnic tribal conflict. Is that right, or is that something we're just not getting a straight story on? Well, here's the way social scientists think about this, is that when you've got a conflict going on, say it's a class conflict, you have opportunists and politicians who try to find ways of reworking it in their benefit. And so often you can see this in the United States where 
if you've got a class conflict, well, people will invoke race to divide the workers. Uh, so it's the same thing in Syria. You know, it started as, as a matter of economic protest and class conflict, but then the regime is dominated at the upper echelons by the Alawite Shiite minority, uh, and a lot of the working class people who were protesting and who have the short end of the stick are Sunni Muslims. So it's easy enough to start trying to mobilize the Sunni Muslims against the regime on the basis that, you know, Shiites are perfidious. Uh, and then that's a different kind of conflict than a, a protest about uh, about neoliberalism. And so things have gone in that ugly direction uh, because because there are these political entrepreneurs who are trying to mobilize people on the basis of these ethnic hatreds. Uh, but uh, it hasn't always taken that form throughout the country. And, you know, there, there have been prominent Alawite Shiites who have joined the rebellion. Uh, uh, the, uh, uh, it's, it's a multicultural thing. Uh, the regime also, you know, is, it's not just Alawites. Uh, a lot of Christians support it. A lot of, of middle-class cities support it. So, uh, but, but there are people who are trying to make it into an ethnic civil war. Now, I'd like to turn to a broader question of American foreign policy in the region. But before I do, I'd like to just refer back to what makes this different for you from Libya. Because in Libya, you supported the intervention. And in, in Syria, you do not support the intervention. What makes those two situations different? Well, there are several things that make the situations different. Uh, first of all, by uh, early March, uh, it was clear to me that four-fifths, of the Libyan population had risen against the regime. Uh, the regime very quickly, uh, the, the, the Libyan regime very quickly lost the entire east of the country, Benghazi and, and all, all the way over to the uh, uh, Egyptian border, as well as losing uh, western cities like Zawiya and Zentan. Uh, so it really only had Tripoli where likely people were afraid because of the heavy uh, armored presence uh, to come out. So, you know, when, when you see four-fifths of the people coming out uh, against a regime like that, uh, it, it gives you some confidence that, that, that this is really a popular revolt. Uh, then, uh, in the case of Libya, uh, the, the United Nations Security Council uh, designated Libya as uh, a, a threat to world order and asked for a no-fly zone and asked for the protection of Libyan people uh, and, and sort of said, you know, do whatever it takes to protect them. Uh, and uh, so, so in international law after World War II, the United Nations Charter only really uh, allows two pathways to the use of force in international affairs. One is self-defense, uh, and the other is if the United Nations Security Council asks for an intervention. Uh, so uh, Libya, and then the third thing is pragmatic, which is the only way the regime could put down what was clearly uh, a very popular widespread uh, movement that had the vast majority of the people behind it was to mobilize tanks and, uh, and scudder rays, uh, these, these uh, rockets on the back of trucks that the, that the Soviets had given the, the regime. They would mobilize these uh, heavy, heavy weaponry against the population 
by by sending them out from Libya uh, over uh, roads that went through the desert. Uh, Libya is a kind of uh, archipelago of, of, of cities uh, separated from one another by, by uh, uh, you know, desert and rugged territory. So uh, since the, the Eastern Army had defected, you had to send out these tanks from Tripoli. Uh, and and, and they were easy to bomb, uh, and, and they weren't near population centers. And, and there were lots of weapons depots out in the uh, countryside as well. So it was practical to intervene. It was legal to intervene. And because the vast majority of the people clearly was, were behind this, it, 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 it was right to intervene. And, and actually, none of those three uh, uh, factors plays in Syria. Uh, we, we, I, I would guess that, you know, it's 50-50 or 40-60 with regard to the regime's support in Syria. Uh, you have ethnic issues or ethno-religious issues like the Alawites and the, and the Christians and the Kurds and so forth in Syria that you didn't have uh, at play in, in Libya. Uh, the, there hasn't been a UN Security Council resolution. There's no basis in international law for the for the use of force. And uh, in Syria, the regime is fighting with tanks inside the cities. So it's 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 deploying tanks and artillery inside homes where you couldn't get at them. Practically speaking, there isn't any way uh, to uh, attack regime uh, assets without you know bombing homes, which would kill a lot of ordinary people. So uh, it just, uh, you know, I, I know if you were, you know, a solid, always a pacifist or a solid, always anti-imperialist or whatever, the two situations look similar. But from my point of view, arguing from things like law and practicalities and politics, they don't look similar at all. Okay. Well, that brings us actually to the broader question that I wanted to end this, the program with. And that is what can the U.S. and um, the Western countries do um, to have an effective foreign policy? It struck me, you know, watching this Syria thing come down and watching some of the charts I saw of different interests and in who they supported and who they didn't support, um, just making an incoherent mess. How, how, how can the U.S. make sense out of their policy? I mean, our two closest allies are an Islamist, Theocracy slash autocracy with you know extraordinarily uh, authoritarian regime and a Zionist regime that is frequently run by people who are favor uh, sort of apartheid in Palestine as part of the means of preserving their state. Now, how do we have those two allies and also an effective mechanism for helping move forward with democratic processes state by state? Uh, well, you know, I, I think the United States policy in the Middle East is uh, certainly, uh, you know, has two pillars, which is Israel and Saudi Arabia and, you know, the oil of the Persian Gulf. You are right about that, uh, and I have said as much in my book. But uh, it is also a, a complex and nuanced set of relationships, uh, uh, you know, the relationship of the U.S. with Egypt, the relationship of the U.S. with uh uh, with Algeria and so forth, it's, it's not exactly determined by by the first two two uh, aspects. And I and I think 
The Obama administration has been reacting against the Bush administration, which had this kind of muscular Wilsonianism. You know, you had, you, if we didn't like you, uh, it was all right if we liked you to be autocratic, but if we didn't like you, then uh, then you were in trouble unless you democratized. So uh, they invaded Iraq and uh, and so forth. And Obama, you know, has been more of a realist. He's been more in the, the mold of uh, of the first Bush or, or of Henry Kissinger in some ways, of you know, saying to the Middle East, "Knock yourselves out, do what you want. We don't care. Democratize, don't democratize. It's, it's up to you." As long as you maintain the proper client-state relationship with the U.S. Right, right. Well, obviously, but I mean, you know, from a realist point of view, that's always the case. Is what your foreign policy is about your national interest. Uh, so uh, Obama is not saying, you know. Defect to the Chinese, but but he he just wasn't interested, I think, in going in and reforming the Middle East in the way that the neocons were. And unfortunately, I mean, there's this kind of irony is that that Bush went to the Middle East and said you have to democratize, and they all said no, we're not interested. And then Obama goes to them and says, well, I don't really care what you do, and they said well, we've got to democratize. Well, what do you mean by we there? Who said we? Uh, well, the youth of Egypt and Tunisia and Libya, for instance, uh, uh, who who weren't on the scene in the Bush era, or if they were, they were protesting Bush's intervention in Iraq. Uh, uh, what what they ended well, up that's partly that's partly a demographic thing, isn't yeah. it? They that population just aged right. into. Right. Um, it was, it was, you know, they they were they were in there. Right, it was the 22-year-olds who made those revolutions. So in the Bush era, they, they were just teenagers and weren't in politics. So, uh, but I mean, it, it is quite a remarkable generation. And and Obama's difficulty is only that he doesn't really have any levers for dealing with the Middle East, and it its internal uh, struggles are not really susceptible of American pressure. So, I mean, people keep saying things like, well, why doesn't he do something about what's going on in Egypt? And what what would you have him do? I mean, aside from having the embassy deliver a sharp memo to, to, to General Sisi, I don't understand exactly what they think that the U.S. could do. And, you know, the, the Kuwaitis, the Saudis, and the United Arab Emirates don't like the Muslim Brotherhood and uh, see it as a kind of uh, radical organization. And when the coup was made uh, in Egypt, they jointly gave the Egyptian government $12 billion, right up front. And the U.S. Right. The US gives like a, a billion and a half altogether, military and civilian, so that we don't even, you know, we can't compete <laughs> even, even with checkbook diplomacy against the Gulf. So I don't, I don't understand why people think the U.S. can shape you know the outcomes in a place like Egypt. So, I don't know. Obama is just riding a tiger. This is a, a turbulent region going through a turbulent time. It's mostly driven by internal dynamics, and I don't think the U.S. has has much influence. Well, I, I'm a, I want to ask you something else first. I'm going to remind myself that it's about oil in a certain way, but I don't want to ask that question. I want to ask you about the opposition of the Saudis to the Brotherhood, because. They share similar attitudes towards governance, don't they? Well, no, uh, and this is the issue. Um, the Saudis are. So, how are the Wahhabis different from the from the Brotherhood? Yeah, well, I'll explain. Thank you. The Saudis, first of all, are an absolute monarchy, so they're like the Sun King in France, 
And the Wahhabis are conservative, to say the least, Muslims. But the Wahhabi branch of uh, Sunni Islam uh, in Saudi Arabia is distinguished by a pact that it made with the the Saud dynasty. Right. I remember this. I remember this from your book, actually. Back in the 18th century, to support them. So the Wahhabis are conservative royalists. Right. The Muslim Brotherhood, on the other hand, are are fundamentalist republicans. Okay, so maybe the uh, Sun King and the Pope versus right, right. Well, it's the Sun King and the and the Catholic establishment versus the Dutch the Dutch Protestants versus Oliver Cromwell versus the Dutch Protestants. That's a better example. Yeah. So William of Orange versus um, the Sun King. Yeah. Or Prince Philip, for that matter, King Philip, yeah, for that yeah. matter. That's right. So, I mean, the, the Muslim Brotherhood are more like the American Baptists or like the Dutch Calvinists. They they were Republicans. Uh, they're not really very much interested in kingship. And so the United Arab Emirates arrested 70 Muslim brothers uh, on sedition charges. Uh, so these conservative Gulf monarchies, for them, it, it's not about religion, right? It's, it's, they just assume Muslims are Muslims, you know, they they, they're not worried about about Islam and politics, but they want the, the Muslim forces to be royalists. They want them to support the dynasties of the oil monarchies in the Gulf, and the Brotherhood is just viewed as not reliable in that regard, if if not in fact actively hostile. Now, the way the royalty works is they dispense, um, they, they disperse a lot of money. They provide you know, education services and buildings and roads, and uh, you, you, a lot of money gets dispersed out to the members of a, the Saudi society, right? Right. They buy off right. their citizens to some well, degree. Well, the, the state owns the oil. Right. Uh, so it's not like the United States where you have ExxonMobil and so forth. I mean, it's the government owns the oil industry. Right. So all the profits are going straight to the government. So the Saudis have hundreds of billions of dollars in reserves. I mean, way beyond what it would need to run the government. They just have all this money stacked up. And the Brotherhood arises in states that don't have oil. I mean, for example, they were a very big force in the Sudan for a while, and that was before oil was found there. Yes, that's right. And and Jordan, Syria, uh, yeah, well, as I said, they arose in Republican countries that didn't have a king. Right. Now, the next thing I wanted to ask, not exactly related, is that what people frequently say, especially in the left blogosphere and among progressives, is it's all about oil. And I've never really understood that because oil, the only thing you can do with oil is sell it on world markets. It's not like it matters who is running Saudi Arabia. It doesn't matter whether Kuwait is held by Saddam Hussein or by the royalty in terms of oil hitting world markets. But oil, clearly it's the case that we want U.S. producers or U.S. oil companies to be able to reap some of the rents of this commodity. But is there anything beyond that in our national interest? Well, you know, people in the government and in the oil industry don't speak publicly about these things, so it's hard to know. But in the 1970s, the oil countries nationalized their oil industries, and they often took away uh, Western assets. Uh, so there was something called Gulf Oil in Kuwait, which was based in, in Pittsburgh, and it was 
the United States' 10th largest corporation at that time. And uh, the Kuwaitis nationalized it and turned it in, in, you know, it became nothing overnight. So a lot of U.S. corporations lost a lot in the 1970s when the oil countries nationalized. And I've been told that there are oil companies that think that uh, given post-9-11 U.S. muscularity in world affairs, maybe it's time where they could get back their fields, uh, that they could own oil fields again in the Middle East using U.S. government pressure. And that might have been one of the things they were going for in Iraq. Well, it seems to be when they said that the Iraqi oil fields are going to pay for it, the only way that could happen is if the United States got access to the the rent value of the oil, that is the scarcity value of the oil. You said profits earlier, but I think that's a misleading word to use when you're talking about oil exploitation. And that seems to be pretty clearly what the motivation was in Iraq. Well, the Iraq thing, it was complicated because we had put uh, sanctions on Iraq that limited how much petroleum it could produce uh, or could export. And Cheney, when he was head of Halliburton in the late 90s, lobbied Congress as hard as he could to get rid of those sanctions because he want, Halliburton wanted to get into Iraq. In fact, it was in Iraq kind of with dummy corporations behind the scenes. Uh, and um, I have argued that Cheney decided that since he couldn't defeat the sanctions in Congress because they were supported by uh, AIPAC and the Israel lobbies, that uh, therefore the only way to uh, to get the sanctions lifted and to allow Halliburton and other kind of mid-level hungry oil firms to get into the Iraqi market and to exploit it would be to uh, to do regime change. And so, you know, in the early 90s, Cheney was against regime change. By the time he comes to Washington uh, uh, in 2001, he's, he's got all these neocons around and is planning a war. So uh, I, I think, in a way, uh, it was the Iraq uh, episode was uh, an attempt to get a, around Congress uh, and, its, and its sanctions on Iraq uh, so as to open up Iraq. And I think Cheney also could see that rising Asian demand was putting pressure on, on supply. And, you know, we've got the historically high oil prices, uh, $100 a barrel or so, uh, and that's, that's actually not good for the industry, but it encourages people to go to alternatives and, and, and green energy. And uh, so, you know, if you were in the oil industry, what you wanted was relatively cheap oil for a long time, but, but oil on which you could make a profit. And there's a lot of it in Iraq, and the opportunities to make a profit on it are, are quite large, assuming the sanctions were lifted. Well, of course, Halliburton makes its money from building fields for exploiters, not from the oil itself. So that's Right, right. Little... Well, but, but there would be a lot of fields to build in, in Iraq. Yeah, exactly. No, exactly. I think that even at $100 a barrel, there's a lot of work for people who are building wells and doing oil cutting. Well, there, there is for a while, but if you're looking out over the next 20 years, that's dangerous right. to have $100 a barrel oil because, quite frankly, people will buy volts and leaves and things. Right. Well, we also should talk about Bill McKibben's three numbers, but we can't do that tonight. Stewart's raised the question of OPEC, and you were alluding to that when you said, you talked about the 70s, the nationalizations in the 70s. Part of what went on in those nationalizations is they embargoed and said you must accept the nationalizations or you're not going to get the oil, right? Right. They knew by then that they were a big chunk of the world market, and 
demand and supply were, were tight enough so that if they went offline, uh, uh, you know, there weren't alternatives. You know, back in, in the old days, the U.S. was such a big producer that it was a swing producer. And uh, you could rev up Louisiana and, and Oklahoma and, and Texas and, and offset some losses in the Middle East. And, and, you know, Eisenhower used to ask them to do things like that. But by the time you get to the 70s, the U.S. had tapped out a lot of its fields. and uh, It was no longer a swing producer, and, and that, that position was taken by OPEC. And so that's kind of the answer to my question earlier is, well, why do we care who owns the oil as long as it makes its way to world markets? Is OPEC prevented it from making its way to world markets, and that was how they were able to force nationalization onto U.S. companies, right? Right. Well, it, it's a little bit dangerous from a national security point of view to have other people making these decisions. <laughs> well, that's, sent, that's said very uh, obliquely. Now, there's one much more thing that Culture Truth said that I want to get to, and that is the radical Islamist people represented by bin Laden. That is, I, I don't want to say al-Qaeda because we're talking about um, a small group of militant, and I hate using that word too because it's been so corrupted, but the Saudis wouldn't let this Son of Skyon of the uh, of, of royal families in the country anymore. They tossed him out because he was doing something other than what the Brotherhood was doing, but was doing something that. Oh, oh uh, Bin Laden wasn't a scion uh, of anything. He his father was a construction worker. Oh, I'm sorry. I thought his father was an. Ex I didn't realize. I, I thought his father was connected to the no, royal family. They were Yemenis. Oh, that's and, right. I and knew his that. His father came to. Thank you. Yeah, his father came to Saudi Arabia and uh, was in construction, and then he started owning construction business, and the king started having him build things for the kingdom. I'm sorry. Thank uh, you. Yeah. Well, Bin Laden was apparently Bin Laden was asked by the uh, the Saudi. Uh, interior, I mean, uh, intelligence ministry, to be a fundraiser for the uh, effort uh, against the Soviets in Afghanistan. Uh, and indirectly, you know, the Saudis were doing that on behalf of the Reagan administration. Uh, I call it the Reagan Jihad. Right. Uh, and uh, so he was recruited for that purpose, and he, he was good for it because he was a socialite. He, he grew up, you know, with the princes, even though he wasn't one. Uh, and but then he was also religious, and he had uh, extensive contacts with the Wahhabi uh, clergy, and who, who you know would make appeals for donations at Friday prayers in the mosque. Right. And so Bin Laden would gather up this money and take it to the Mujahideen in Afghanistan. And Steve Cole, Steve Cole reports him with with royal royalty in uh, in Afghanistan on hunt, hunting tours, things like that. Oh yeah, yeah. You know, he was friends with the princes. Uh, the, the Bin Ladens, you know, they they became very wealthy and they became part of the Saudi elite over time uh, because they, you know, the, the royal family can't build airports, but the Bin Ladens could. But then what happened was that uh, uh, Peter Bergen, I think, was the first to report on this, was that when uh, Saddam Hussein in invaded Kuwait and occupied it, Bin Laden went to uh, King Fahd and, uh, and said, you know, I can get my guys back together who were in Afghanistan and we can, we can get uh, Iraq right back out of Kuwait the same way we got the Soviets out of Afghanistan. And and King Fahd gave some thought to the seedy, uh, uh, rough uh, uh, Mujahideen wandering all over his kingdom on the way to uh, to Kuwait, and he said, no, no, thank you very much, I'll go with the Marines. And uh, 
Bin Laden was angry about this, and it's not it's not allowed to be angry with the royal family, so they kicked him out. Gotcha. Culture of Truth just adds that his point is that the break between the Saudis and Osama bin Laden shows the true priorities of each group. And I guess that's kind of what I was trying to allude to. Um, the Brotherhood has a certain set of priorities, and, and the royal families of the Gulf have a certain set of priorities. But bin Laden's is different. I mean, the Al-Qaeda is different. It's, yet all three are Islamist. All three seek theocracy. So what distinguishes bin Laden from the other two? Well, bin Laden is a genuine radical. He wants to overthrow the existing orders. He wanted to overthrow all the governments. And reestablish the caliphate, yeah. Would the Brotherhood want to reestablish the caliphate? Oh, I think there might have been a time back in the 30s when they thought like that. But uh, more recently, they really have become like the Lutherans. You know, there's a Swedish <laughs> Lutheran church and a German Lutheran church. And uh, they're they're organized on, on national bases now. Right, within within the framework of being a Protestant movement. Yeah. Although they would be really upset to be called that if you... I would imagine. I'm not sure. Yeah, very interesting. Um, we're kind of petering out. I, that, that's really what I wanted to cover tonight. I appreciate your taking the time to join us. Oh, I got one more question. What, what's the effect of the Syrian situation and its potential outcomes on Lebanon and Lebanon with respect to Israel, do you think? Yeah, well, on Lebanon, the Syrian situation is extremely polarizing because the Lebanese Christians are neutral to leaning towards the Syrian regime. The Lebanese Shiites are largely supportive of the Syrian regime. The Lebanese Sunnis are supporting the rebels. Uh, so the last time you had this kind of polarization in Lebanon in the 1970s, it resulted in a civil war. And it hasn't so far, although there, has been, there have been firefights and bombings. But uh, I think partly it's that enough people remember the civil war that they just don't want to go there again. Right. Now, that was a brutal, brutal war. It was horrible. I lived through part of it. And uh, and so I think the impulse to pick up a gun and organize a gang uh, is being combated by those uh, those memories. But, you know, you just don't know where the breaking point is. And you did have this Shiite Hezbollah militia went to Syria and fought alongside the, the Syrian army against the rebels in Qusayr, uh, near to Homs, uh, about 15 miles from the Lebanese border. Uh, and the Salafi uh, Sunnis uh, from Sidon uh, volunteered to go fight with the rebels. So you had Lebanese on both sides uh, in that battle, uh, and the, the Hezbollah won. Uh, so uh, that's not a good sign. It's very polarizing, potentially destabilizing, and the only thing... So far, Lebanon has going for it in all this is that uh, people are uh, not so crazy as to want to uh, fall into civil war. Right. Well, Juan, I really appreciate your stopping by. It's, we just don't get an opportunity to hear this kind of thoughtful, detailed, and well well-grounded analysis of the region. It's just really a wonderful thing that you could join us. Folks, I would just add just really quickly is that all that discussion we had about different groups, those were all Sunni groups. We didn't really talk about Shiite impact at all. So it's important to remember that these are extremely complex relationships that we're talking about. And um, it's hard to devise a policy in such an environment. Juan, is there anything you'd like to add? No, I think we've been very thorough, Jay. Oh, you always are, sir. We very much appreciate it. Well, thank you so much. Go blue. And shukran. <laughs> thank you. You're welcome. Maslama. Maslama. Mm -hmm.